Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're on the phone with a very special guest, Allie Feller, who has her own blog, who has run many races, is living in New York City. I, I guess, Allie, would you say you're, you're not a native New Yorker, but I guess you've been there long enough where you probably can say you are now. Well, here's a twist. So I grew up in New Hampshire, and thank you for having me, by the way. I'm very excited to be here. So I grew up in New Hampshire, and then I just moved my way down the East Coast. I went to college in Connecticut. Then I moved to New York City after I graduated. Now, I'm technically in New Jersey. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Are I you know. In, are I you... crossed the Hudson. I got a dog, and I had to do it. I needed <laughs> to give her green space, and I needed a car so we could take her on adventure. So I am now in Weehawken, New Jersey, right on the Hudson with views of Manhattan. So I still I still have a hard time when I travel and people ask where I'm from, I find I still stay in New York City, so I need to work on that. But it's like, enough. It's like that episode of Seinfeld though, you know, when the, the new area code came out years ago yeah. and everyone wanted the two one two, right? So it's like you kinda it's hard to give that up, that two one two area code. So I hear you And I'm a nine one seven, which I'm proud of. Yeah, you're nine one seven was like the, you know, the new New York, I guess. Yeah. So that's Happy right. I have my 917 number. That's awesome. That's all. That's why, like, I Connecticut just added a third area code here in Connecticut, and I was thinking of changing uh, cell phone providers. And I was like, hey, as long as I can, you know, thank God for being able to port numbers because I'm keeping yep. that 203. Um, <laughs> the things we care about. Yeah, yeah. Area codes and, and where where our phones are located versus <laughs> you know some other things. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Where did you go to school in Connecticut? I went to Quinnipiac University. Wow. What a, what I a, usually, I like to just say Connecticut and just guess Yale and then just like <laughs> not correct that, but that doesn't really happen all that often. So yes, I went to Quinnipiac, had a great time. I like how you picked Yale because usually uh, I travel all over the country and I'll say, oh, I'm from Connecticut. And I don't, before the college, you know, the college conversation, they go, oh, did you go to UConn? Because, you know, UConn is known for winning national championships in women's basketball and some in men's basketball. But uh, I like how you picked Yale. Yale's really close to us. We're about 20 minutes and Quinnipiac is a great school. Sam, our producer, is going to be graduating hopefully in December from Quinnipiac, Mm -hmm. a semester early. And I've got a lot of family members that have gone to Quinnipiac, and uh, it's amazing how that school has grown in the last uh, 20 years. Impressive. Oh, I know. When I was a senior, they were building a whole new campus and a whole new sports athletic center, so it's a very exciting time for that college. But I mean, they went because I wanted to major in journalism, and they offered that there. And I'll be honest, I really liked the campus. It was so pretty and so well-tech, and the lawns were so well-manicured, and I was like, ooh. This is a really pretty place to spend the next four years, and it was a half-melting time. Yeah, they have a beautiful campus there. So for any or for any of our listeners at home that have children that are looking at schools, Quinnipiac is a great school. Recently, there was a tornado that came through that area. I don't know if you heard Allie, but yeah, yeah. So it was uh, Sleeping Giant was pretty devastated. I think it's still closed, and rumor has it I think it's going to be closed till the fall due to the damage. But beautiful area. 
great university. They've done great things. And, uh, you know, if there's listeners at home that have kids that are seniors, I take a look at it. And great pizza in the area, of course, here in oh, Connecticut. Oh, yeah, lots of great pizza. Yeah. And as a college student, we're here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, awesome. Well, for our listeners at home, we're excited to have you on our podcast. And for those of you who don't know who Allie is, Allie, why don't you give us your background? I mean, clearly we've talked. We, we know where you went to school and where you've lived and where you're living now. But what brings you uh, to where you are today in your career? Sure. So it was all, it all goes back to that journalism major at Quinnipiac. So pretty much everything up until now has been fueled by this dream job that I came up with when I was about 16 years old. I was a dancer growing up, so I competed in tap, jazz, ballet, all those styles that, you know, we're all a little bit familiar with. And I also loved writing. So I never wanted to be a professional dancer. I wanted to write about dancing. It was really nice that I, you know, had this specific dream I subscribed to Dance Spirit Magazine, which was pretty much the only teen dance magazine that had ever existed. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and I'm going to work for Dance Spirit. So with that in mind, I applied to Quinnipiac. I majored in journalism. And when the time came to do an internship, I called up Dance Spirit and said, here's why I'm awesome. Here's why you should hire me. And they did. And so that's kind of how it all started. I I interned with Dance Spirit. I loved it. It was exactly what I hoped it would be. I basically spent my days researching and writing about dance, and I spent my nights seeing live events. I went to so many Broadway shows, so many ballet performances, and just got to take in so much amazing culture pretty much every night, which um, as a 22-year-old New Yorker who was, was definitely living paycheck to paycheck, getting to see all of that as part of my job, so for free and getting paid was, was a pretty sweet deal. And so, yeah, I moved to New York City once I graduated. I got hired full-time, which was really, you know, fortunate. I graduated I was in 2007, which was right at the right time to graduate. I think it was the 2008 graduate that really hit a rough time in the job market. And I was fortunate to be right before that and to get hired and, and have a really great career at Dance Spirit, and I worked my way up until I was editor-in-chief, which was the ultimate dream, and and it was. It was amazing. I loved the work we did. I loved the team I worked with, and I was doing exactly what I wanted to do when I was 16, but I came to a point where I realized, okay, now I'm 26, so young, but I realized my interests had changed. I wasn't dancing anymore, so I still loved dance, but I was a bit removed from it in that I had started running. So very quickly after moving to New York, I realized, hmm, I should probably get into some sort of like fitness regimen. And my Craigslist roommate happened to be a runner. And I was like, that sounds terrible. We would have to do that if we were late for dance class. We'd have to run a lap of the track, which was like 30 seconds. Not so bad. But to us, it was the ultimate punishment. Winning to me was never something you chose to do. It was like the one day in fifth grade that you had to run the mile, and it was the worst day of the year. And I just, I didn't know that people chose to do this. She had all these medals on her wall, and I was like, those are pretty, and I do like shiny things, so now I'm a little bit interested. So she took me to our local running store in the city, which was Jack Rabbit Sports, got me on the treadmill, got me fitted for running shoes, and then I was there. It took one run, and when I say one run, I, I don't know if most people would call it that. I literally sprinted.
sprinted out our front door of our building, and I think I made it maybe 30 seconds because I didn't realize you're not supposed to start sprinting. You're supposed to just run easy. I didn't know what pacing was, you know, all the beginner mistakes. I made every single one of them, but I knew that there was something there, and it excited me, and so that first day, I think I ran the length of four lampposts. And then the next day, I wanted to run six. And eventually, I knew there was a dog park one mile away. And I was like, I got to get to that dog park. Like, very motivated by shiny things and puppies and pizza. Those are kind of, that's me in a nutshell. And so I started running. I eventually ran my first four-mile race in Central Park, which was amazing. And what a place to run your first race. Central Park is just, it's still my favorite place I've ever run. And I've run there thousands of times and thousands of miles. And so I was working at Dance Spirit, loving what I was doing, but all of a sudden I had this new interest in and appreciation for health and fitness. I loved running. I joined a gym, and I loved doing all the classes. I was into spinning and kickboxing, and we had a class called Shizzle, which was just, you know, weights and stuff, strength training. And I loved it, and I realized I would get tickets to a Broadway show for work, and I'd be like, well, I'd kind of rather go to this spin class. <laughs> so was like, okay, so what do I need to do to, you know, be happy in my career, in my life? What's the thing, you know, something felt out of whack. And for me, it was, I wasn't writing about what I wanted to be writing about anymore. I still love the dance spirit work, but I was like, I'm going to start a blog. So I started this blog in October 2010 called Ali on the Run, which was kind of now my, like, internet name, Ali on the Run. And it was really just to document my running, my workouts. I mean, I, I, the posts were so boring, but people started reading them, and then I started writing about more personal stuff, kind of day in the life. It's just really like a journal. I mean, I loved journals and my diaries when I was younger, and this wasn't much different, except it was public. And I think at first I thought, oh, my God, I was going to read it. It would be fun for me to look back on. And then my mom started reading it, and then I eventually shared it on Facebook, and she started reading and finding it, and you know, 2010 was a great time to start a blog because they were very trendy then. And it took off a little bit, and, and I loved it. And so I started running more races, and I ran half marathons, and I ran my first full marathon. And so running very much became a big part of my identity. And so, yeah, eventually I decided to leave them mostly because I wanted to do something different. I mean, I got my dream job, but I realized that was my dream when I was 16. And my dreams were changing, and I needed to figure out what that looked like. And so I actually worked at Jackrabbit first for a little bit. I was there, I think, only for eight months, helping them out with some website and social media stuff. And then I decided to go freelance, which is where I'm at now. So now I'm a freelance writer and editor. I write for lots of health and fitness publications. I never thought I would be freelance. I always thought I'd survive in an office setting with, you know, management and HR and rules and you know I'm like really looking at home in my pajamas and I got it not so bad. Isn't it a great feeling to be able to work every day in your pajamas? It is, yeah, <laughs> until I have to go to like a social event and I'm lost. Yeah. I have yeah. no idea what to do. I literally once, not that long ago, I was like heard it just cool in the thirties. <laughs> I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done. And so I get very confused, and I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just going to roll those dice leggings to the bar today or whatever I'm doing. So, you know, I'm very much a whole body. I don't go out all that much, but every day that something comes 
up and I have to really uh, struggle to to get out the door and look presentable. But yes, the pajama life is is a pretty good one. The pajama life is real. So I guess that's like, you know, and I remember uh, I was an entrepreneur before I started the charity. And I remember like, I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Like, you know, I could just come to, you know, work wearing shorts and t-shirts and sneakers and not necessarily have to wear a three-piece suit like I used to in corporate America. And you get there and then, yeah, you you do become kind of soft. Like when you have these events that you have to dress up for, you're like, oh my God, what do I wear? Like, what am I wearing? Yeah. And so I know, and every day I'm like, man, I'm disgusting. Sometimes I put it on my to do list because otherwise I won't. I'll just come home and put my bathroom on, and I'm like, okay, you're good, you're good to go. Fine to be comfortable, but don't be gross. So that's true. That's true. Hygiene is important. So make sure you do yeah. remember to shower, but uh, being comfortable. And I always say, and, and I, I was in the financial service business before I started the charity. And I always remember uh, I went through this big training and one of the the, uh, the the sales leaders was like, hey, you you need to dress the way your clients dress. You know, so if at the time, if we were going to see like manufacturing, you know, companies or farmers, like showing up in a three piece suit is probably a little awkward for, you know, someone in that profession, possibly. So, you know, it's okay to kind of take the tie off and, you know, wear a collared shirt. So I always tell the staff here, you know, we are an endurance-based charity and not to say that we don't dress up when we have clients, but most days we're in, um, I've got running sneakers on right now. I've got shorts and a t-shirt. So, uh, you know, I, I, I always tell people, it's like, hey, what what environment you're in? You know, we're, we're not mm-hmm. selling securities or trading stocks and bonds and meeting with banks and world leaders. So I guess it's okay for us to dress in a casual function, uh, professionally casual, I guess is what I'll call it. So that's that's yeah. good stuff. Well, thanks. I actually love that about Jackrabbit because I did it Dance Spirit for so long, which, you know, wasn't formal, but we worked with a staff of all young women, mostly in our 20s. We loved wearing cute outfits. And every morning it was like, what's everyone wearing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just fun. And we loved getting dressed up. And then I went to Jackrabbit and everyone was in running clothes. And I definitely wore a dress my first day yeah. because that's what I was used to. And by the second day, I was, I'm was i pretty sure I was in shorts or leggings and devolved from there. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. I think workout clothes are more expensive than business professional clothes in some aspects because like you could drop you know i mean a pair of good leggings whether they're nike or you know uh you know lulu you're talking you know probably you know a hundred dollars 80 bucks don't remind me don't remind me how much is sitting in all my drawers right now (laughs) and we we should have a podcast episode on creating a currency exchange for apparel instead of like gold or Bitcoin or one of those, um, because I think people probably, there's some people that probably have enough in value of Lulu and Nike. And I mean, I have, I think my, my I have two sons, uh, 12 and 14, and they always comment on how many sneakers I have in my <laughs> wardrobe. I think I'm up to 52 right now, so. And yeah, see, I just don't add that stuff up. It scares me. Yeah, yeah, I, that, that's, I, I don't either, but my kids, my two boys tend to remind me. and. Funny. The 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 uh, the scary thing. I went into a pawn store the other day because I have a mutual friend who has a pawn store, and I've never been in one in my entire life. And I walked in, and they had sneakers that were for sale. And I said, you know, usually I think of pawn stores. I think of like 
equipment and VHR or VHS and VCRs and TVs and all that. And they had plenty of that stuff and bikes and tools and stuff like that. But they had a whole wall of sneakers. And unbeknownst to me, he said the sneaker trade is insane. Like, oh yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It's absolutely insane. Like these these basketball sneakers. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, if running sneakers become like marketable, I've got plenty of running sneakers. But you know, I guess like the LeBrons and the Kobe's, like they just have these sneaker editions that are worth hundreds and thousands of dollars. It's it's absolutely insane to think that sneakers could be worth a couple thousand dollars that have not been worn or or slightly worn. So maybe no. The, there's the there's the key to to. A long, wealthy life. Yeah. Athletic wear. There's something there. There's something there. So hold on for our listeners at home. Make sure they hold on to those Lulus. You might get something <laughs> for that first generation Lulu tight or pant uh, possibly yeah, really. in the future. So um, something else in doing my research that I found out that about you that you haven't talked about yet that I want to talk about is Crohn's disease. You were diagnosed yeah. with Crohn's disease. And can you share with our audience, first of all, for those who don't know, what is Crohn's disease? And when did you sure. find out and how did you find out? Okay. Um, so I was first diagnosed with Crohn's when I was seven years old, uh, which is a really scary time for that to happen, to have major health issues. I had no idea what was going on. We were on this big family vacation, the, and not just me, my brother, and my parents, everyone, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the cousins. It was a really big deal to get everyone together from all across the country. And I got super sick, and my dad had to leave and bring me to the hospital and then bring me to a different hospital and a different hospital. So basically, what actually happened then was I was throwing up a lot. And the weird thing is I've never thrown up from Crohn's disease since then, but that was sort of the symptom that they were like, this isn't right. Took me to these hospitals. I had an endoscopy performed on me, my little seven-year-old body. And the doctor said, it was a pediatric gastroenterologist, and she said, you have Crohn's disease. And I'm pretty sure my parents were like, what's that? Because today, in 2018, you can just Google that and have a zillion answers to what Crohn's disease is and all kinds of solutions and ideas. But in 1992, there was none of that. So basically, they explained it's an inflammatory bowel disease, the sister disease, as we call it, it's ulcerative colitis, which mm-hmm. more people might have heard of. But... Crohn's disease is an inflammatory bowel disease, it's an autoimmune disease, and basically for me, it's so different in everyone, so I kind of always just explain how it's affected me, which is inflammation in my intestine, in my colon, in my intestine, and that means I can't really digest food, and, and this is when I'm flaring, so I go through periods where I'm either flaring or the disease is pretty much fine. Right now, I'm flaring a little bit, which is frustrating, and what that means for me is I can be sitting here talking to you totally fine, and all of a sudden my stomach is going to say, you need to be in the bathroom right this second. So we call that the urgency, and it's very unpredictable and comes out of nowhere, and that means I need to be in the bathroom right now. And basically what's happening in there is bloody diarrhea, which I know that's not cute, but that's the reality of this disease. It's not a cute one. And... That can happen up to 30 times a day when I'm flaring. So it's very unpredictable, very frustrating, and really hard to live a normal life. Because even, you know, I'm so fortunate to get to work from home, but even working from home, like if I'm flaring and I'm recording a podcast, I can't always sit on the phone for an hour 
because I know I'm going to have to go to the bathroom at that time. So it makes it really hard to plan and, and really hard to just go about my daily life. I can't be in transit. When I was working at Dance Spirit, I definitely couldn't take the subway to work because the thought of being underground on a subway with no bathroom, that to me, was ter- that fear was paralyzing. And I actually went on medical leave for a while during my time at Dance Spirit, which was really hard for me emotionally. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very exhausting. It takes a lot out of you. It's draining. Um, obviously, going to the bathroom that many times a day, I'm less experienced. I'm dehydrated. I get night sweats, sores, joint pain, because again, it's that inflammation and part of it being an autoimmune disease, you know, somewhat related to rheumatoid arthritis. So my joints tend to get really swollen and, and achy. Um, yeah, those are the, the bathroom stuff is the biggest one for me. The stomach pain, the cramping, and the constant need to run to a bathroom. And you're really getting a lot of relief. So I've tried lots and lots of different medicines over the years. I've tried immunosuppressants. I've tried biologics. I'm currently on a medicine called Stellara, which is a start I give myself at home every eight weeks. And Sometimes I think it works, and other times I'm less convinced, like right now, it's working. Um, but the reality is, see, there's no cure for it. Uh, it's a chronic illness, and that means there's, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all medication, like most diseases, and it's a lot of trial and error, which um, I don't always have the patience for. So this disease has taught me a lot about patience and forgiveness and kindness, and it's made me miss a lot of runs I want to go on, a lot of races I've trained for, and that sucks. But it, I, I hate to give this disease any kind of credit, but I will say it has made me a better person for all those reasons. That's pretty crazy, you know, and, and so I appreciate you telling us the, the truth of it, you know, for our listeners at home. And, and you know, all diseases suck, and but Crohn's is, is really, uh, really, really brutal. So a question for you. Do your flare-ups happen just randomly, or do they happen like when you're stressed, or is it just yeah, something that, that you have? Yeah, that is a million-dollar question. No one knows, right? <laughs> so yeah. I've always, you know, we've always really tied it to stress, and I believe very strongly in the mind-body connection. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And for a long time, my flares did come at times of stress or big life changes. I flared when I moved away to college. I flared when I studied abroad in Australia, which was horrible. Just in Australia so sick and so frustrated. I flared when I started my job. I flared when I got promoted to editor-in-chief. It has never quite calmed down for as long as I need it to. And so, yeah, you know, we've always kind of tied it back to stress. I'm less convinced now that it's just stress. That for me was always the, oh, well, I was really stressed, so I'm flaring. But I'm so convinced there's got to be more to it, and I hate not having that answer, especially if you could go and yeah, that's a loaded question, of course, that I, I gave you. And I mean, that's like the one thing with so many of these chronic illnesses and diseases. Um, I, I just, you know, with, with what we do here in our space with pancreatic cancer, I just feel there's so much to be known about disease. And, and you know, I, I, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I think, you know, our environment, our diets, our lifestyles oh, yeah. play a big fact into disease and, and not just... Uh, you know, chronic illness, but in cancer, 
and also in um, our heart, you know, and, and, and heart disease and stuff like that. I mean, scientifically, it's proven, right? Like if you eat a, a fatty diet and you eat certain foods, you are highly likely to get heart disease at some point in your life. So, um, you know, so I, I truly believe and I, I just my whole point here is I don't think we know enough. And that's what's somewhat exciting, Ali, you know, with uh, with what you know, uh, charities are doing in the, in the endurance space for us. And I know you've run, I've saw you run for Crohn's and colitis, um, I have, yeah. which is a great group. They're good friends of ours. We're actually, yeah. uh, we're headed to the Napa and, uh, Napa to Sonoma half marathon. And I think that's been one of their signature events for the yeah, past couple of years. Really? First one I ever did. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that race. That's yeah. so funny. I- I ran it for Team Challenge, which is the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, uh, you know, endurance team that supports the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And yes, they trained me for my first half. Just, you know, you're very familiar with that process, of course. Yeah. And yeah, Alpha to Sonoma was my first 13.1. I had the amazing experience out there. So, oh, you guys all have the best time. Uh, that, I've done that race the last three years, so uh, we're headed there this weekend, and uh, we've got a small team. Uh, it just uh, it's inspiring to see you know the success they've had um, at that one event, um, which is it's not a big marathon, you know, or half marathon, I should say. I mean, it's good size. It's not it's not one of the biggest, but mm-hmm. they bring you know four hundred to five hundred to six hundred runners. I've heard in the past. I think last year they had like four hundred and thirty three runners. Uh, for yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so it's hats off, and they do a great job. And so it's exciting, you know, that there are people in that disease uh, that are uh, trying to make change and create change, and, and you've helped do that. So, so with with the the Crohn's disease, that that's got to be such a challenge with the with the training and the running. I mean, so oh, yeah. how how do you manage that? Like with your training, like in the past, and you've run a couple of New Yorks and. A couple other marathons I saw looking at your bio. Like, so what was training like? I mean, training in itself for a marathon or any, I always say any distance for anyone who's never tackled that distance is a job in itself. But, you know, once you get that first race under your belt, I think it gets a little bit easier. But, you know, marathon training is a a full time job, regardless if you've done no, no one, in my opinion, can not train for a marathon go run a marathon and say after like, oh yeah, I'll do that again. That felt really good. Um, it's not going to feel good. Yeah. It already doesn't feel good. So how did you manage that training for a marathon? Like, you know, battling Crohn's. I mean, this is, uh, this is like real stuff here. And, and naturally yeah. just shared um, with our audience that the difficulties. I've always sugarcoated it stuck. Um, and that's not necessarily always true, but for me, uh, it's always been a problem for me unfortunately. And that's why last year I finally said, I'm not running a marathon this year. I think that my body cannot take the stress of marathon training because I get sick almost every time. And so, the, you know, the, the big lesson I learned from that is one day of training at a time and not putting so much weight and emphasis on the race itself, which really sucks because that's kind of the point of training to eventually get to that race day and have that amazing race you want to have and get that shiny medal and, and then do all the celebrating after. Um, but for so long, I would pick these goal races and I would either get sick during training or find myself sick by the time race was I mean, 20, in 2016, I would sign up for the New York City Marathon and it was going to be my third time running it. I love that race. It's my favorite race. My whole time race, in my opinion, 
greatest race on the planet. And I haven't run that many of them, but I, I stand by my statement. And I went into that training in the best shoes and the best health of my life. My training, my first half of training, I was going third in every other distance. I felt so strong. And out of nowhere comes this player. Ugh. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It was like two months from race day. So I'm right in the middle of my training and I'm hoping it passes and I take some time off and I'm like watching myself lose fitness, trying not to harp on it. And then it just became clear that I was just like, this isn't going to happen for me. And you know, you don't just sign up for, you know, everybody's like, there's always another marathon. Not necessarily for the years. Like you can defer, but like you know, it's hard to get into. And I happened to get into the lottery that year, which is crazy. profound words there uh, for our listeners at home, you know, to to think about. And so I I have a question related to, so going through this, 
I mean, this takes, and you said something I have always said, um, you know, training, I'm actually training for this, uh, the, the Napa to Sonoma with my wife. And I said something to her, she had a very uh, severe injury about a year and a half ago. She tore her psoas muscle training for the New York city half and she had to defer and she ran it. She was able to get back to strength and run it this year. And I said, you know, all running sucks. Um, and it's, and it's mostly, you know, 90% mental and 10% physical. And I've always said that regardless of the distance, and you can probably attest to this, even for you to, to see someone have these struggles to finish, regardless of the time you finished you you finished the 2016 marathon, you got the medal, you crossed yeah. that finish line, you crossed the start line, you finished, who cares about the time, but you know, you, you, you know, and you weren't going to win in the first place, right, Allie? Like I always tell our runners, I'm like, <laughs> you weren't going to win. So we take that. Yeah. You take the pressure off and, you know, but so yep. r- running is, is fascinating in the fact that, you know, I, I, I would, I would go out on a limb that 90, Eight percent of the people that start the race, regardless of the distance, no, they're not going to win, but they're still going to finish, right? So, how many things in life do we know that we're not going to win, but we're going to finish? You know, so that's a testament to runners. But you know, going back to you, you know, what type of inspiration do you use to kind of say like, hey, like I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm having a flare up today, and I've got it because you got to dig deep. There's got to be something in you that you're digging deep to, or something that you're looking forward to. I know you've got uh, a little one on the way, so maybe it's that, or is it something else along the way that kind of helped you through the years that like really dig deep and inspire yourself to do this? I mean, for me, it's I love it. Like nothing. I feel my day is it doesn't take. If I haven't gone for a run or done something physical or spent that half hour to an hour by myself in races, I really go to that time. Um, and that's even something my husband and I have always talked about, about when we have a baby, is that, you know, when the actual season is here, is I'm like, I can handle anything, anything goes at me, but I need an hour. I need one hour a day. And, and then, yeah, when I'm sick, that hour gets really messed up. Like, sometimes it takes me an hour to run one mile because I'm walking and pooping and using the bathroom and using it again and then using it just one more time. I can't even tell you how many times in my life I've said, let me just go one more time before leaving the house or run or wherever I'm going. And I will, you know, I will come home. I'm by myself all day. I'm usually inside at a computer. So that hour is so valuable to me. And I just know I need to at least try. Some days, I don't have it in me to try. And somebody's trying is getting out of bed. During the bad players, that's trying, and that's the best I have. But I'm someone who I refuse in any area of my life to not give my best when it comes to my work, when it comes to my relationships, when it comes to my, you know, any goals that I have. I am not someone who goes easy on myself. And this has been kind of a point of contention with some people in my life that, I'm always told, you know, you need to go easier on yourself. You need to go easier on yourself. And I'm like, that's not my style. If I always went easier on myself, I would never do anything up to my standards. I would never feel proud of my work. That's just sort of who I am. And I know that that works for a lot of people, and that's fine. I'm all about, like, in life, in every aspect of life, choose you, do what works for you, use the mantras that are good for you. For me, it's I always need to try, and I always need to do my best. My best will change, 
depending on my health, my mental state, where I'm at on any given day. But not trying for me is never an option. Well, you clearly have not let Crohn's define who you are or what you do. So uh, it's great stuff, Allie. What has been the hardest thing to this point for you to overcome? And it could be related to Crohn's or it could be something else. Um, I mean, my mind does go to Crohn's, I think, because, you know, it's very much on my mind been talking about it. Yeah. Uh, but I do think I'm someone who I, I like to make plans. I like to set goals. I like to train for things. And the uncertainty of this disease has really taught me a valuable lesson. Focus on what you can control and, and go in on that. And so that's something that's a lesson I'm constantly learning. And I have a really good life. I know how lucky I am to have a great husband, great relationship. I love my job. I love my dog. I just happen to have this really crappy disease that's making it, I guess, a little more exciting. So I try not to focus too much on that and just focus on all the good things that are going on, which is hard sometimes. Very easy for me to sit here and say this. On days that I am feeling really down, this can be really hard which is why on the good days, I try to really drill it in. On the bad days, I can't forget it. Well, that's that's pretty special stuff because I think, you know, we all, I, I, you know, I use a phrase, uh, you know, with cancer for us is it's not about getting, it's not about being on top, right? And I don't think life is, and this is, I guess, a lesson, you know, it's not about how, you know, the success that you have, which, you know, some people will gauge like life, like how, how successful was your life based on what you achieved? I tend to look at it the opposite. Like when you get knocked down and we all get knocked down, no one listening is ever going to be always on top. I don't care who you are, personality, celebrity, athlete. And you look, we can, we can use so many different metaphors and analogies, but uh, I think what truly defines us, Ali, is how you get up and when you get up. You know, and that's something that uh, I think is hard for a lot of people to kind of comprehend and and to find that gumption or find that inspiration or find that thing that gets them up off the ground, um, you know, when they're knocked down. And clearly you have done an amazing job. You know, you you are constantly getting knocked down by Crohn's, but uh, you haven't let it define you and you have always gotten up and hopefully you will continue to get up. And I know you've got so many great things in your life to look forward to um, coming down the line. And and one of those things, I, I just had a quick question here was how has being pregnant changed your life? And I know you mentioned a little bit of it before, but uh, you know, your day to day and just your outlook, you know, how has that affected you? I have chilled out so much. <laughs> um, you chilled out. I, even my husband will agree with this. Like, I always picture pregnancy as being really, really hard for me because I have this almost 30-year history of my body and I'm not getting along. So I always assumed I would be really miserable if I were able to get pregnant. Um, and I haven't been, and I'm so grateful that I'm able to be pregnant. I know that that's not the case for everyone, especially with Crohn's. A lot of people have a really hard time getting pregnant or being pregnant at all. And I'm so fortunate at the way this has worked out for us. And I'm just really focusing on the good and the productive. And I really want to make sure I'm in a good mindset when this baby comes. And that's something that we can instill in this little 
women were going to be raising. And it wasn't to be wired for stress, like I've been for the last 33 years. So, yeah, I've chilled out a lot, which is, feels really good. I wish I hadn't taken this long, but it feels really good. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of parenting advice, and so I will just give you mine for having two boys right. that are 18 months apart is just hopefully remain chill uh, throughout those moments because it goes by so quick. And I look back at my two boys that are 14 and 12, and I wish they were little babies where, you know, they were, like, peeing all over the place. And I remember my son grabbed, like, the uh, the butt bomb or the desitin, and my wife and I walked in, and he was, I think, like, 15 months old and he was standing in his crib and it was smattered along the walls and all, all, all along all in his hair and on his face. And so just, I guess hopefully being chill remains your mantra as you go through parenthood. I think that's like probably the best advice I can give you is, is stay chill, stay chill, Allie. So uh, now we're going to go into a couple of, harder questions I think that are going to be a little bit more uh, thoughtful not thoughtful uh, but a little bit more uh, probably have to think a little bit about the answers here um, right. and I'll start with an easier one and, and because you have the podcast and you do a great job I was listening to a couple of the episodes over the weekend doing some research and, and love that you've got to interview some amazing guests um, from all facets of fitness which is really really had to be really cool for you um, but if you could interview anyone, who would it be? Like you're a person that, and it could be anyone in the universe that is alive. Um, who would that person be and why? I mean, the fun answer is Michelle Obama. The absolutely doing work that she's done. Another fun answer is Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, you know, I'll avoid going political, but I could think of a couple people right now that I would really like to ask some questions to. Uh, not so much in an admiring sort of way, like with Ellen DeGeneres, but um, there's people there that I really just want to know what's going on in their heads. Uh, but to keep it fun and light, I would say Michelle Obama comes to mind, Ellen DeGeneres comes to mind, just because I adore them. They're such positive forces on this planet, which is so important now more than ever. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure why this came to mind, but Zac Efron popped into my head. Cool. <laughs> I'm not going to ignore that, and I'm going to put him on the list. Why Zac Efron? He's so pretty. Come on. He, I mean, he is pretty. He is pretty. I, you know, I uh, I travel a lot, and I was on one of my flights recently, and I watched uh, the remake of Baywatch. And oh. I, I'm not, like, I, like my kids are into the, the, you know, the hero movies, so we watch plenty of The Rock, and he is in that. And I will tell you, I remember when they were touring – and they had all this, you know, these these jokes going back and forth with The Rock and, um, you know, with Zach and, you know, about lifting and stuff like that. And he, he's pretty uh, he's pretty handsome in Baywatch. I, I know. I will, I will leave it at and that. My, the movie had no substance other, for me, but. Yeah. I have one other big answer for that one. Which I'm putting this out in the world right now because I really want it to happen. I have my one of my lifelong dreams is to meet Phil O'Neill and I still have it. So I'm putting this out there in as many places as I can that I'm dying to meet Shaq. So Why Shaq? Anyone listening, why Shaq? He's amazing. Well, I, I played basketball collegially and I was a big fan of Shaq. So I, I find him, yeah, I find him guy, like, he's yeah. Funny. He loves tree houses. Like, it's so cool and quirky. So, um, 
I don't really know. I don't necessarily even have questions I want to ask him. I just want to stand next to him and feel tiny. He is gigantic. I've seen uh, <laughs> pictures of him next to uh, one of our scientists was at a charity event in New York City, and she is she cannot be taller than I don't know five one five two if that she's pushing <laughs> that in heels. And she was next to Shaq, and he was gigantic. Like it was in the lobby of like the I think he was going into one of the financial services companies to do something and uh, some like speech or something. And he was absolutely enormous. Like I was like, oh, my God. And I don't think he's shrunk much since he retired. I think he's gotten a little bit wider and maybe a little bit taller. But, yeah, he's a he's a big dude. And uh, I think he's cool. I, I, I remember when he was in the league playing basketball, I think he was like a, a cop on the weekend or in the summertime. I thought he did something like in Vegas or uh, or LA, or maybe it was shortly after he retired, which I think he'd probably have some really cool stories to tell. Yeah, he's so cool. So, he's on the list. That's, that's pretty pretty impressive list. We've got <laughs> Michelle Obama, we've, we've got Ellen, Zac Efron, and then Shaq. That's a that's a pretty yeah. diverse list there, Allie. <laughs> There's my lineup. That's cool. So that's cool. Well, if we ever do get the opportunity to uh, to meet Shaq or any of those other three guests, we definitely will will put a plug in for you for uh, the podcast. Thank you so, much. Um, so next question is, and this might you might have to think a little bit on this one is, what is the greatest gift that has cost you the least? Oh man, the greatest gift I have given or received. Received. Greatest gift that has cost me the least? Yeah. Or that has cost the least? Like, cost the tangible. least. Yeah. I want to give something so intellectual, <laughs> but also, like, 10 years ago at Christmas, my aunt gave me a really good pair of nail clippers that I still use. <laughs> That's, like, the lame answer. I feel like I want to think of something really good. And I mean, what comes to mind, honestly, came to mind first, is just, like, love and kindness. Yeah. So, love, kindness, nail flippers. I feel like, what more do you need in life? And that's so profound right now, I think, with the way, (laughs) not to bring politics into this, and, uh, you know, nail clippers are good to have. Hygiene is a, is a big plus. We talked about showering before, so, you know, nails would be right there. Um, but in all seriousness as well, I mean, hygiene is serious, but, uh, love and kindness with the world today, I think, you know, I think we all need more. And I think if people are loving and kind to each other, regardless of their sex or their race or their income levels or wherever they are, I think the world would be a lot easier to navigate. For, for many. All right, last question, and this is a tough one. In your experience, what advice would you give someone sitting on the couch listening to this, feeling sorry for themselves right now? Like to get motivated, to get out there, to run, to get active. What advice would you give them? You get one hour. You can keep feeling sorry for yourself for one more hour to listen to sad music, to watch. An episode of The Office, you already watched 14 times, you get one hour. And after that hour, you're going to get up and you're going to go for a walk. And it only has to be five minutes. Just go outside and just go for a walk. And if you still feel super crappy after, you go back on the couch and you can put The Office back on. But one hour, go for a walk, get some sunshine, or if it's raining, doesn't matter what the weather is, it's nature. Go outside, get a little bit of it. And if you wake up tomorrow and you still feel really crappy, give yourself an hour, go outside, and come back. And 
it's okay to feel crappy sometimes. I don't, I'm not smiling all the time. When I'm sick, I go through really, really hard times, and I'm not a pleasant person, and I'm very depressed. And I let myself be depressed for a little while. Eventually, you have to pick yourself up. No one else is going to do it for you. No one's going to come in your house and say, hey, man, you have to get up and you have to feel better. I mean, if you have great friends or family that will do that and that will work for you, I have those people in my life. It doesn't work. Anytime that I've made a big shift in my mental state, it's because it's been when I was ready and when I've done it myself. It's never been because of something inspiring I read or something someone said to me. That stuff helps. You need to find it from within yourself. And it needs to be, you need to be ready for it and be ready to embrace it. And that's why I say every day, go outside, go for a walk. Do something different. Because if what you're doing right now isn't working, you need to be the one to make a change and find what is the one. If we were live in the studio, I would just drop the mic because you just dropped the mic on, on our <laughs> listeners at home. Did you drop my phone? I, 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 yeah, well, if I drop the phone, I'll probably lose you. But uh, <laughs> that that is absolutely the nail. You hit the head right on top of the nail. So profound. And that was awesome, Allie. And um, for our listeners at home that want to read your blog, learn more about you, and listen to your podcast, where is the best places for them to find you and find out more about you? I am unavoidable on the internet. On Instagram and Twitter, at Allie on the Hunt 1, A-L-I, and I simply with the number one at the end. I have the Allie on the Run Facebook page, which you can like. The Allie on the Run show is the name of the podcast, which is everywhere that you can find podcasts, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. And my blog is Allie on the Run. So you can just type that into Google and you'll find it. But it's Allie on the Run blog. Awesome. Well, Allie, this has been so awesome for us. We love sharing stories of inspiration. And this has so much inspiration in it. And hopefully, as you just drop the mic for our listeners at home, take your bit of advice. You know, one hour a day, that's not a lot of time for someone and uh, that's all it takes to get started. So we appreciate you coming on the Project Purple podcast and sharing you know, with our listeners and our audience a little bit about who you are, what you've been doing, and, and some amazing, amazing inspiration. Al, you've been a great uh, guest on the Project Purple podcast, and uh, we really appreciate it. This has been awesome. I, I'm so stoked that we had you on our podcast, and I wish you nothing but success with everything you're doing, and hopefully the flare-ups stay to a minimum. And You know, I'll leave you with this. You're a family of three for the next couple of months. So you and your husband and your dog, enjoy that three because once that fourth comes, there's no way to give that one back. (laughs) They're there for the rest of their (laughs) life. (laughs) So, uh, Got it. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the great work that you guys do. I'm so passionate about spreading awareness for all of these people that people don't know about, don't understand. And you guys do such an awesome job of that. So, get up.